Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Jonathan Brill. Jonathan prepares organizations to profit from radical change. He is an expert on resilient growth, innovation, and decision-making during uncertainty. He was a senior leader and the global futurist at Hewlett-Packard, where he directed long-term strategy programs. He was a creative director at Frog Design and the managing partner of innovation firms that have created over 350 products. He's currently the managing director at Resilient Growth Partners and a board member at Frost & Sullivan, a major market intelligent firm with offices in 46 countries. He's also the author of Rogue Waves, How to Future-Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. And it's a pleasure to welcome Jonathan to the deep dive today. How's it going? It's amazing, man. Thank you for having me here. You know, I'm I'm really excited about our conversation and, and listeners are used to me hearing that because, and it's a genuine emotion because when I've taken the time to seek out a guest and bring them on the show and read their work, assuming they're an author or engage with whatever they're doing is because there were some clear and direct ways in which I think it connects to the conceit of our show, which is to really focus on culture and insights and complexity and all of those interlocking, interconnecting issues. So When I came across Rogue Waves, you know, beyond the intrigue of the title, it was really this idea of, you know, how do we use this analogies, metaphor rather, to understand the future? What does it say about ourselves? So I was really excited about the conversation. And, you know, I'm I'm really going to start really with, with that question. Why did you develop the notion behind using waves to describe this phenomenon of dealing with our our future. So in the deep ocean, 100-foot tall waves can appear out of nowhere, and they sink a healthy percentage of the large ships on the planet, like 600-footers. Like, we're not talking about dinghies. And for decades, for centuries, we thought these things were kind of made up or they were an edge case. The, the math said these were one in 10,000-year phenomena. But what we've discovered more recently over the last 20 years or so is these are actually very frequent in the deep ocean. They probably occur in right now. They occur about every eight or 10 hours during major storms. And mathematically, they're very similar to what happens when you have something like pandemic, like COVID. And what's happened with COVID is the issue is not the disease. People get confused by this. The disease is there, it's infectious, it's terrible. What? But why did this escape and another disease didn't? Why were we able to contain SARS and MERS, two respiratory diseases, and not this one? And the answer is that things changed, right? We saw a pushing up against the biome and increased density in Wuhan. We literally added a population the size of Los Angeles to the city and about 20 years, 25 years. And we did that across China. 400 million people moved to cities, expanded those cities, increased their density. 
then they got connected by 16 high-speed rails. And then between 2010, after SARS, after MERS, and 2020, uh, we saw a 10 times increase in travel out of China. That's not even including foreign travel into China, making it the largest spender on tourism on the planet. And so what happened was a thing that could be contained by the techniques we had at hand 10 years ago, 15 years ago, couldn't be contained today. And so seemingly manageable issues, seemingly manageable changes added up to create a nonlinear event. And that's exactly what happens in the deep ocean with rogue waves. And that's exactly what happens when your business gets out of control, when, when something external causes a change to your financial, your operational, your strategic perspective. You know, it's, it's interesting because we got a, a lot of stuff in there. And this is always uh, it's exciting to me as a listener uh, as a, and as an interviewer, but it's also a challenge because I'm looking at my notes and, look, and thinking about what you just said. And I'm trying to figure out how to weave this all together. And I was going to get to COVID and I'm going to kind of table COVID for a second because I want to spend a little bit more time on the notion of the wave. And what I'm hearing from your response as to why waves and why you chose that particular metaphor is that seemingly something that is less probable is more probable than we think. And there's a, a lot of factors that can go into that. And I remember there was an example in the book you mentioned about you know, the Titanic, which is a great example of a big ass boat that went down and all that kind of stuff. But what really intrigued me was prior into the Titanic, you talked about kayaking mm. and how kayaks are um, very resilient as it pertains to dealing with rough water, you know, kind of not just rough water, but um, streams that are volatile and all of those things, because you're basically like wearing the boat. and the more likely you can kind of, even if you capsize, can kind of spin the boat over. And I'm using imperfect language because I'm from Brooklyn and I don't do boats. Um, it ties to your ability to withstand the waves. And that kind of led me to a bigger question, or I think at least to a bigger question, which is the boat as resources. We are all in different boats, right? We're all faced with different types of waves. We're all facing those waves in different boats. And it's and it's why I push back against an analogy connecting to COVID where people will say, oh, well, we're all in this together. I'm like, well, no, we're not, <laughs> right? Some of us are in different boats. Some of us are in dinghies, as you described. Some of us are in large tankers. Some of us are in kayaks and, and all the rest of it. So long lead in to kind of get to how do we look at the metaphor of waves in connection to our resources that are available to us when resources are clearly not equal? So what I heard in there were three, three interesting topics. The first was about statistics, right? Unlikely things. The second was about resilience and resilience strategies. And then the third was how do we respond when our capacity, when our capability might be different than, than others, uh, either in our families, in, in our businesses, in our, our economies, in our government? So let's just kind of take those one at a time. The first is, you know, people talk about Pareto curves, right? The bell curve or, or anything like that, where you have these statistical distributions where you've got like the 80-20 rule or, or whatever. 
And what they forget that those are only relevant when you have a relatively large sample as an individual, as a small business, right? Those, those Pareto curves, those standard rules, they don't really so much apply to you because your business is very spiky, right? It's just like being a baseball player. And if you swing once a year and you hit, you bat a thousand, right? But if you swing three times, that, that same thousand might be 300, right? Uh, or maybe it's zero. Like you don't know because you don't have enough at bats. And so there are two things to think about when you think about high impact, low probability events. One is, uh, does it matter if it's high or low probability for you or does it matter that it's high or low impact for you, right? For a lot of companies, for a lot of businesses, they, they, they don't really understand the statistical reality, right? That even if you flip a coin you know, a thousand times, there's a 0% chance almost that it's going to be 500 heads and 500 tails, right? You got to flip it like a lot of times to have that be a statistically irrelevant chance that it's not 50-50. The second thing you brought up was this idea of resilience and how do you think about it? You know, I think the way I think about it, at least in a business context, is there are four real categories of risk in any business and to a certain extent in life, right? You have financial risks, right? Maybe you're, you have asset losses, your financial strategy breaks down. You have operational risks. Maybe there's a massive decrease in efficiency or, or maybe your budgeting is off, right? Uh, maybe you have external risks, you know, kind of what I think of as rogue waves that the COVID comes and capsizes your ship. You have an industry crisis, maybe a credit rating crisis. Or maybe you have a strategic issue. Maybe it's something about your demand forecasts are off, uh, uh, your CEO quits, something like that. But there, there's this bucket of different types of risk. And the first thing when you think about resilience is like, what are those risks for you? What are the existential risks? What are the key risks for you is categories, is buckets, right? If you're a startup and your CEO leaves, that could very well sink your ship. If you're a Fortune 50 company and your CEO leaves, who cares? We drop them every three years anyway. Then the second thing is to think about, okay, well, what, what type of risk is this? And I think of it in four categories, static versus dynamic, symmetric versus asymmetric, synchronous versus asynchronous, and permanent versus temporary. And let me define those because those are kind of geeky words. So you know what you want to think about when you're looking at resilience is like, how do you want to flip what I call these risk switches? So a dynamic risk might be like, I have a house and uh, I live right behind a national forest. We have a terrible drought here. And so the risk of my house catching fire from a forest fire is dynamic. The grasses are drying out. The trees are drying out. The risk is going up. If I buy insurance, I can make that a static risk, right? So I pay insurance every month and the risk stays the same for me. You can move from symmetric to asymmetric. So uh, you take a look at what's going on. One of the big stories right now is around microchips in cars and all of the American car manufacturers, aside from maybe Tesla, uh, all the big ones got, got nailed and they've got half finished cars sitting on the lots because they can't actually add this last component to the vehicle. Toyota, after the Daiichi nuclear disaster said, Hey, we need to figure out what a massive disruption would be. What are the parts of our system? that we could adjust to change the scale of that disruption. And so what they did was they bought six months worth of semiconductors. And in 2006, when there was a natural disaster, they moved smoothly while no one else did. In this last year, 
they did the same. So what they did was they took a symmetric threat for the entire industry and they made it asymmetric, right? Where they weren't impacted by it. Uh, are threats synchronous or are they asynchronous? Do they happen to everybody at the same time or do they happen to people at different times? If you can make it happen to you at different times, at a different time, often you have the buffer, you have the chance to recover that other people, other players don't. And then the third is permanent versus temporary. So one of the big conversations we're having right now uh, is about inflation. It's all over the news, right? We see all kinds of inflation. And there are two ways of looking at it. Is this temporary? Are supply chains starting up and we're all going out and partying and drinking? And so like just kind of it's going to be a little jiggly until things get organized, until things get in flow. Or is this what's called embedded inflation? Is this a sustained in inflation that, that's just been sitting in, in our economy and, and it's starting to be recognized and things will always just be more expensive? It's a real question. And if you can figure out how to protect yourself from one or the other and other people aren't, that's a major strategic advantage. And so you talked about uh, how do you deal with this? How do you respond to radical change if, if you're in a different boat than other people? And the answer is by thinking about resilience. Sometimes you have to think about it in different ways than other people. What are the real risks for you? Like I said, the, the CEO of a Fortune 50 company dying, quitting isn't an existential risk. The CEO of your family business dying, quitting might be. Right. So, so your risks change. You want to get really specific about what those are for you. The other piece you were talking about, as I remember, was kind of philosophically how, how to think about this. It's really easy to look at these big companies, right? Amazon and say, Amazon, man, they're, they're unique. They've got piles of money. They've got the smartest people. They've got the best technology. They've got piles of money. Uh, and so they can do things I can't. That's absolutely true. But thinking about the relationship of resilience and growth is relevant for everybody. And the same approaches that they used to turn this into an advantage for them are the same that you can use as a small business. Let me give you an example. My friend's farm, family farm in Ohio, the Chef's Garden, they service 800 of the top thousand restaurants in the world. They ship globally. Uh, they service big companies, small companies. They're, they're totally diversified. They were determined, they're determined that they want to be a future-proof business and that no one shock is going to impact them or kill them. But what happened in March, April of last year was every single one of their customers stopped ordering. That should kill businesses. I mean, that should decimate. That's an existential threat for almost any business. In fact, it decimated their industry. But they were prepared. They thought about what would happen if there was that massive shift, right, in market demand, that was their existential threat. That was their, their strategic threat. And they said, okay, well, if that happens, we're going to have not a fully planned plan, but a partial plan that we can start shipping to consumers and start shipping direct to consumers. And when COVID hit, they landed the plane. They said, okay, we're going to figure this out. We're going to get serious about this. A couple of weeks later, Thomas Keller was, was out marketing for them, the, the, one of the top chefs on the planet, so on and so forth. And in 2020, they shipped more vegetables than in 2019. They pivoted because they had thought about radical change and how it could enable growth for them, how resilience could enable growth for them. 
And as restaurants are coming back online, hopefully in the United States, at least, as we're starting to, to see the resurgence of something close to the old normal, uh, they've now developed an entirely new market. Their competitors are washed away and they're set up for massive growth. And this is a small family business. This is not Amazon, which effectively did the same thing, but it's a philosophical approach, right? To how you run your business, how you think about your business. And that allows you to thrive in these times of change. And I think those are, those are great examples. And I had a, another kind of add on to that, which is a cultural question. Because if I was, you know, thinking about you laying out the risks that we have, um, financial, operational, external, and strategic, there is often a thread of culture running through some of those things as to how we evaluate them or assess them in the first place. And before I finish that thought, I, I think, yes, Amazon is, they're arguably the largest company in the world, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think anyone in comparison to them is smaller <laughs> with, with, with some comparatives. And to the example, if they have 800 clients or customers, that's a pretty big family business, <laughs> despite being a family business. It sounds like it's not quite Charles Ingalls' farm we're talking about here, right? I'm telling all myself it's with my a, little house on a prairie reference. <laughs> no, it, it, the the average the average farm is about five thousand acres. They're about ninety nine. Ninety nine acres total. Yeah. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. I want to see that case study. <laughs> Coming out in HBR shortly. I hope. Yeah, that's awesome. But they're they're uh, they're they're one of the most exceptional businesses I've seen in my entire life. Oh wow, we gotta get them on the show. <laughs> Maybe they are Charles they, Ingalls. They, <laughs> yeah, Farmer Lee has a he has a cookbook out right now. If you want to review cookbooks, well, that might be the drop. Don't give it away. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give it give it away yet. But you know, let's tie back to the culture piece. You know, you know, we bandy about the idea of culture, but then. When it comes time to nail it down, it becomes a little harder to do. And there is a, a bend of the philosophical in there. And I use COVID as an example because it's come up in the conversation, but is the way in which we look at these risk factors partially a function of the culture in which we exist, where there's just certain things we're willing to do or not willing to do vis-a-vis other places, other types of organizations that affect how we deal with these types of waves? I think absolutely. And I, I want to get really specific about a, a couple of definitions here because I think people misunderstand what risk is. People think about risk as a measure of threat. Risk is a measure of volatility, right? Beta is a measure of volatility over time. And so what you're looking at is actually the window between threat and opportunity. And the question is, when that window opens up, how do you respond? And that's a cultural difference. I certainly see uh, in, in cultures uh, where you're not allowed to fail. In, in France, right, there's much more risk-averse uh, culture than where I live in Silicon Valley. And I think the, the, there are two things, right? One is, how do you think about uh, success versus failure, right? But the second is, how do you think it 
and, and we think about that as a binary thing. I ask you to think about it slightly differently, to think about it as a portfolio. So when you think about stocks, right, it's almost insane to only invest in Amazon. Like they're stunningly overpriced right now. Uh, last I saw it was, I mean, the, the price earnings multiple was, was insane. Like if they hit that, if they hit that growth, the government's going to break them up. Like, like there's no, there's no question about what, what the next step there is. So it's not a realistic multiple. You want to look at a variety of, of investments if you're investing for the long term. You know, some high growth investments, some, you know, sustaining investments. We're going to invest in Procter and Gamble because they make toothpaste. You know, and then we're going to have some insurance investments. We're going to invest in, in, corporate bonds or, or, or whatever, right? You want to have that range. Well, the same is true when you prepare for the future. There are all kinds of mitigation strategies that you can use, and we cover those in the book. But the big thing is that you want to look at your innovation strategies too, right? Where you can't mitigate risk by changing the way you make decisions, shifting processes up, kind of the standard things you do. You want to figure out how to innovate. And this is where almost all companies get it wrong right? It's, it's, it's the highest paid person's opinion on like what we invest in, but you need to have a portfolio of high risk, medium risk, and low risk innovations. And you need to measure those against the right timeline. You know, if you're 65, you make very, very different investments uh, than you do when you're 18, just because of, you know, just even in the stock market, the variability of the stock market over time, you can, you can have this year, which, you know, is completely crazy because of external events, right? The flooding of the global markets with money, or you can have 2008, right? Same thing. Same thing could have happened at the beginning of 2019. It's kind of random that it did. So, so you want to think about, you know, do you have the right portfolio of innovation? Are you make taking the right portfolio of bets, you know, to manage the, the types of threats and opportunities that you're comfortable with? the type of upside and the type of downside that you're comfortable with. And so it's, that's kind of how I think about it. And the, the key thing is a leader is an organization is teaching your people to think this way too, teaching them to think probabilistically because that's how you manage threat. And that's how you manage opportunity. I think a lot about what I call risk bands. Uh, you know, I think this is a key thing, especially in larger organizations is that you tell people, I want you to hit this number, or I want you to achieve this goal. But what you really want to do is say, you know, I will, I will penalize you if you don't achieve that goal. And I'll also penalize you if you don't take enough risk, right? You, you want to show both sides of that window of like where you want them to bet before they give you a call. And that's actually how like stock traders work, right? They have, they have a right level. Like you can write a million dollars, a billion dollars, whatever it is, uh, of risk without calling the boss. And that's kind of how you want to think about it as a manager too. Yeah, I did that job for a long time. So I definitely <laughs> understand, you know, when you're taking a position and you're just sort of writing that, you know, to kind of keep the wave analogy going and you don't have to let your your MD or partner in my case kind of know what's going on. But we also had a risk assessment tool where positions were visible on the desk as well. So that was kind of an added layer. Anyone can kind of get a sense of what the risk profile was on the desk at any given moment. You were always watching the portfolio. Everyone was always repricing the yeah. risk. It's a basket. And that that's the thing that is a, is a trader. I didn't know that about your background, but as a trader, that the idea of pricing risk 
is totally natural. But that is not how 97% of companies, 97% of leaders think or how they're set up. Yeah, I mean, there is a... a that That's literally your job. And it's industry specific, but it's universally useful. Yeah, it is it is a definite um, skill. I, I would tell people all the time that the job is is managing the risk. It's it's not the the product and the tool might differ and change, but it's it's largely a an assessment of of risk and, and volatility. The other piece though that I will add into that to kind of continue down this road is um velocity and discovery. Discovery being like what we would call volume at a price, right? Like I think people who don't really know markets assume that no stock prices are all equal in the sense that I can get 100 shares at $27 and versus $2701 and so on and so forth. And discovery only happens through finding out where there's volume. Um, depending on if you want to buy or sell, hence you have big moves, which brings me to velocity. The velocity of a move can happen quite quickly, which I think is is very germane to the the book where you know, there are many historical examples in the book as well. And things can seem obvious in hindsight, you know, as we look backward, <laughs> much harder to see them going forward. And so I, I want to introduce those additional elements to the risk conversation because I think they're actually very important. Discovery, finding volume at a price, we can use that same analogy for many other things, which I think is the insight work, the kind of future casting work that you know, you're, you talk about in a book, but you're also a practitioner of, and then that velocity, which is the speed at which something happens. COVID might be useful in that regard, right? Things, things didn't change overnight, but once the cascade started, shutdown rolled quite quickly, you know? So I want to give you a chance to kind of reflect on those two additional elements to this. Those are great questions. Uh, one of the things that I see happen a lot in in companies and business planning is we think that next year will be better than this year by 6% or worse than 6% or whatever. And the reality we've seen this year is that you can have an Amazon year, right? Or an AMC year, right? Where you go bankrupt. I think they're bankrupt now. Or you can have a Zoom year where you have exponential growth, right? Both things are possible in the same year for companies that looked really good 12 months before. The question really is if one future, like one radical future accelerates or another one decelerates, are you ready? Are you ready for that philosophy? Can you, like, as, as you would maybe think, Phil, uh, can you trade it down, right? Uh, can, can you get out of your positions? The, the issue isn't that you have good positions or fast, bad positions, really. It's can you get out of your positions fast enough to offset the risk, can, to offset the downside, right? Having exponential growth is great, but it's like, it's like being a herd of lemmings, right? Uh, this is K-type species. So, so they, they eat and they eat and they eat and they eat until they run out of food. And then they have to migrate. And, and you know, oftentimes over a lake, sometimes accidentally over a fjord, you know, and they can swim across a lake, but they might not be able to swim across the Atlantic Ocean, right? Different kinds of problems. So you want to be thinking about what's that range of possible futures and how do you respond when they happen? Because they will happen, 
and can you get out of your position fast enough? Right. And, and have you done enough? Uh, you taught, you were talking about price discovery. I'm using more of a, a geographic example, you know, but can you do enough pioneering? Can you do enough advance work to have some idea like the farm did of where you're going next? Because when, when things happen, when you know, stuff, it's the fan, that's not the time to be figuring this out. When the rogue wave hits, that's not the time that you want to learn how to do big wave surfing. That's a great point. And it circles me back to the culture thing, because I think there's a great example that you gave in the book, which actually speaks to your background, you know, growing up in Maine and being in a fishing community. I, I wrote this down because I thought that that was, it ties to another story in another section of the book about indigenous fishing. And I think that was connected to kayak or, or what have you, but I might be misremembering the sequence. But nonetheless, you you talked about all the factors that changed fishing in both Maine, in Massachusetts, and how climate change and overfishing and all these different things. And I think the the terminology used was compounding of normal phenomena. And that made me think back to the indigenous example where that compounding of normal phenomena seems to me deeply embedded in a cultural perspective, one to the other that's different. And so I'm, you know, indigenous, not to, um, what did I get castigated about earlier? Um, I don't want to make it seem like societies are perfect one to the other. Um, so I'm not casting this sort of mythology of indigenous as having figured it all out, right? So I don't want to do that. but. I think there is a different relationship to nature and environment and community versus some of these other models where is the compounding of normal phenomenon, i.e. something like overfishing, a function of just what we do or a choice based on the culture we are in, which is looking for that growth over growth over growth over growth. So I think you're, you're asked, let's take a, a slightly anthropological event uh, and then pull it back to, to economics. So you've got to remember that the until the I think the concept of utility value was developed in the 1880s, right? This idea that something has a, a value over what it costs to produce, right? That it has like uh, I like this, I like Ferraris instead of you know Hyundai's, right? Like it's somehow they do the same thing. In fact, the Hyundai probably does most of the things you want better, but damn, I want the Ferrari, $300,000 more. Like that was a relatively new concept a hundred years ago, 150 years ago. And it was a new concept because up until then we'd been living in scarcity. There wasn't enough of anything anywhere, right? And all of a sudden we have this new concept that we can grow, right? At a significant rate. That was a new idea, to the world, which is just weird to think about. And so when you take a look at in indigenous cultures or, or historical culture, it's all based on this idea that we have to conserve what we have, right? We have to work with fine bounty through conservation. It's a very different way of looking at the world. I think there's deep wisdom in that. Uh, I also think that that way of working the world can push us back. What What's new to me, what I think if you look 50 years, you know, if you start 50 years in the future and you look back at today, what's interesting, what's truly interesting is you to look at climate change, 
we're able to say this is going to happen in the future. That's a new concept in human history. You look at COVID and we said lots of problems. I'm not, I'm not arguing that we've got the world worked out. But a year later, we have a vaccine with 95% efficacy. Uh, we are distributing it around the world. There are countries that uh, are moving toward herd immunity. Uh, we have an economic recovery. This has never happened. This has never happened. We changed the shape of nature. This is a new concept. And so when we take a look at kind of the machine age, we're going to grow and grow and grow and grow, kind of look at the world. And we take a look at that historical conservationist perspective. There's this third new perspective that I think brings them together, which is we have data about the future. We can start to think about it in, in far more sophisticated ways, uh, far more cost-effectively, far more broadly than ever before. Uh, and how do we use that to, to grow more efficiently, more effectively? Because the reality is if you add another billion people into the U.S. equivalent middle class on the planet, and you take them out of rural poverty, you're increasing their resource consumption today by something like 32 times. Now, that is unsustainable, right? It, you can argue whatever you want about climate change. You can, you can argue that it's false based on current terms. But if you start adding another billion people and you increase resource use by 32 times, nobody's projections of the future are sustainable. And so we need to figure out, okay, how do we do this? How do we go back to that old way of thinking about uh, conservation and, and finding bounty through conservation? And also, how do we figure out where and how we can optimize to get the most benefit for the most people, for an order of magnitude larger number of people on the planet uh, than, than we used to in, in those cultures that, that we're talking about, those indigenous cultures? It's a, I think we face a different problem. A absolutely. I I think the scale is a is a huge part of it. And, you know, I think the points regarding the pandemic and COVID, particularly as rogue wave events, you know, to kind of use the, the language of the book, is well made. But there's a huge cost attached to to all of that, right? Like I think that's the the sort of the flip side to that, to that piece that, you know, the the vaccine is not evenly distributed, right? And, in you know, I'm in, I think you're in the U.S. too, and I'm in the U.S. You know, this has become a, a another serious fissure in, in our, in our culture, right? In our society. And that doesn't seem to be decreasing anytime soon, right? So I, I wonder as we, as we look out onto these landscapes and think about, you know, the risk that are, that are inherent in our society, if we're not running into the same challenge, repeating over and over again, despite the fact we might, you know, it's COVID-19 now, which is still here, right? Like, this is not in the past tense. This is very much in our present. We, we talked about permanent versus temporary. Yeah, we absolutely. Think temporary, this is permanent. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the great lie we're telling ourselves right now. And, you know, my, my question to that would be, did it have to be this way, right? Like, this is something I ask people all the time in other conversations is the choices that laid us out to get to this incredible dislocation, were those the only choices available to us relative to the demand 
to go back to what we perceived as normal in the first place. And what I mean by that is like, oh, shutdowns are terrible. People are going bankrupt, but people are also not being as compensated with the social net to ride these things out, right? So how we respond to the wave is kind of the gist of what I'm trying to get at, right? And, you, and you've and you been sitting and looking at all these different pieces of this mm-hmm. puzzle, not just pandemic, but all of them, right? So um, how do we, I guess, assess the way in which we are looking at the risk in the first place? I think you're getting to you know, two questions that are that are really deeper. And the first is, you know, at what time did we have a choice, right? Rarely do you have a choice at the moment that the wave breaks, right? You've, you've just taken up big wave surfing as a hobby. Uh, <laughs> congratulations. Um, so that would be my first question is, why were we not making infrastructural decisions, you know, in 1995? Uh, they considered the impact of increasing density, right? Why did we decrease uh, healthcare stockpiles as risk was going up? What we thought was a static risk, like a hundred year storm, you know, was an increasingly dynamic risk. Like, why did we do that? And it's because we were being short-sighted because, you know, well, that hasn't happened in my lifetime. Um, you know, we didn't have that indigenous history that you're talking, you know, that you were kind of talking about. We, we need to build that indigenous history, but we need to question it, right? Are, is that history, are those assumptions still true? Because in a world of change, you know, one of the biggest things that, you know, the thing that gets you isn't, you know, what you know, it's what you know that just ain't so, um, as, as I think Mark Twain said. Uh, the second thing you were talking about was rate of diffusion and, and, and vectors of diffusion. So I think there, there are two things two pieces of that conversation, right? We were talking about COVID uh, vaccine distribution and the rate of the distribution. You know, I think what's interesting to me is, you know, Brazil developing vaccines, uh, the BioNTech vaccine coming out of Germany, uh, another vaccines coming out of the UK, Sinovac, right? Vaccines coming out of Brazil. Uh, I, I'm not deep on what what's happening in India, but my point is, that that's cool, right? Even though the technology wasn't evenly diffused, it will be five years from now, right? Five years from now, everyone will be able to make a BioNTech. I can guarantee you that there are billions of dollars going toward every major country guaranteeing that they can. So that's really interesting to me that we look at this and it's not diffusing fast enough, but it's actually far more diffused than I would have imagined in December of 2019. The second question is, you know, about rights and access. We live in this age of tremendous abundance, you know, but it's not evenly distributed. And the rate of distribution certainly isn't fast enough for my taste. Uh, I, I want a better, my primary goal is how do we create a better world for everyone everywhere? You know, and how do we, how, and that's what I do. That's my, that's my goal in advising. It's, it's like, how do we, how do we do that? It's not just how do we make money? If we're just making money, like whatever, we, sh- we should be on Wall Street. Um, <laughs> the second thing to, to think about, or I guess the third thing to think about when you think about diffusion and, and within the subtext of a lot, some of what you were saying, was about uh, economic inequality, 
I believe not not just not just infrastructural uh, and resource inequality, but economic inequality, and and I think that's where we're in this philosophical shift in this country under the Biden administration. So uh, we have heard about John Maynard Keynes, uh, the great the great English economist who really was the first person to think very seriously about inflation and and how do you manage it. Uh, the first monetarist, major monetarist economist, and what we've forgotten uh, of his lesson, and I think this is something that the Biden administration is pushing really hard right now, is that you can have as much inflation as you want as long as the the, the bottom 50% of the population's income is tracking with that inflation, right? Then it's just a ratio. But if some people are doing really well from that inflation and some people are not, you know, you end up with this disconnect that we have in this country. When I was in Chile and must have been October of 2019. I was talking with government ministers and business leaders, and I was saying, hey, you know, there's some structural things in your education. There are some structural things going on uh, in your economic inequality where you're giving people the skills to become entrepreneurs, but you aren't giving them the funding base or the opportunity. And so at the end of the day, you're going to have you're, you're going to have protests because the bottom half aren't getting pulled up with the top half. I admit like five or 10 years from now, not five or 10 days from now, and there were global protests and they're in the process of, of rewriting uh, and, and rebuilding the con- country under a new constitution. That's what happens, right? That's what happens when economic inequality goes too far. And it's a real risk in the United States. Economic inequality here is higher than it is in China. Economic equality in the San Francisco area is at the same level as it was in Chile. When, when all of this happened. So, you know, we've got to take this seriously. I think the Biden administration is trying to do that, is starting to do that. I wonder, you know, when Keynes was writing, it was really easy to do this because countries were effectively insular economies or you had colonies, right, that, 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 were, that were tied to those economies. Uh, and you might have had some cross-border trade. But, but the real thing was, was those, those clusters. Now that we have so much external trade around the world, not so much in the U.S., and so much import into the U.S., you know, I think we, we look at this without fully understanding the implications. And I think there are two. You know, one, I talk to my economist friends, and they say, hey, you know, a lot of the inflation right, is transitory in the United States. And it's like, that, that's true. But the inflation in China might be embedded. And by the way, we import heavily from China. And so that may drive a lot of risk that we aren't thinking about inside of our little bubble, inside of our little snow globe. And there may be external risks we should be paying attention to. Yeah. But, you know, I think you, you raised some, some really great points. And I, I made a note about the inflation point because it came up. And I was actually talking about this a, a day ago or so in an unrelated conversation, but I think it's it's germane to the conversation because inflation is one of those topics presented as a potential risk event, particularly um, when one has seen um, spending that is not corporate, that is more people-based, it, it tends to now inflation becomes a thing. So I mentioned that because and this is completely anecdotal, the example I'm about to give, right? Which is, you know, BlackRock recently purchased 132 homes mm-hmm. 
um, in a, a housing subdevelopment, I believe in Texas. I could be wrong, but I believe it was in Texas. And they purchased 132 homes, bulk deal, 20% over asking price. Great for a developer. Not so great if you were living in Texas and were looking to buy a home in that particular area. I, the reason why I referenced that is in an unrelated report, I, you know, I was just flipping the channels and I saw like one of those morning TV shows, probably Good Morning America, talking about inflation and they're saying oh, housing prices are going up. And I'm like, well, are they? You know, like, is that real? Is Are housing prices going up because myself and others are saying, oh, now's the time that I want to buy a house? Or is it going up because a company that has $7 trillion under management with very low, um, very cheap access to money, damn near free, mm-hmm. can say, you know what, I'm going to buy 132 houses that were would have been gone to people and we're now going to rent them. So potential homeowners are now renters and the process continues. That's what I'm trying to get at in the inflation. Like, is it real or is it a function of the financialization that we've embedded into our system, right? So it doesn't, it, I'm not asking for you to like give me the BlackRock answer, more the bigger answer about the waves. <laughs> I, and I remember what, what my, and I remember what my prior point was uh, as well. And it's interrelated. So in the early 1970s, uh, we got off the gold standard for a whole bunch of reasons uh, that we, we kind of stepped away from, from what was called Bretton Woods. And that meant that currency was virtual. It's, it's a made up thing. We can print as much as we want and it doesn't matter. And what we've been doing since then is whenever we need to spur growth, we print a bunch of money uh, and we've managed to figure out how to contain it in a couple of different types of equities, right? And uh, to some extent in government bonds, uh, in the stock market and in housing. And the reality is the large percentage of the U.S. population isn't affected by any of those things because they're not homeowners, because they aren't invested in heavily in the stock market, uh, and because, you know, like bonds are some weird thing that grandma buys. So this hasn't been an issue. It hasn't impacted the price of milk. But what you're suggesting is there's so much money floating around. I think M1, you're probably tighter on it than I am, uh, is almost doubled. Right. The amount of cash money, the amount of money that's been printed. I mean, it is crazy what's happened without anybody discussing whether this is a good policy idea. And it happened overnight, right, over both the Trump and the Biden administration. It's, it's been it's been a policy decision that has not, I think, been adequately discussed in public. And And I think the question really is, can you continue to sustain that amount of investment and keep it? in the financial markets or will it flow out and when it does flow out can you contain it can you keep it in check can you change the priorities of investors and i think phil what you're asking is is the profound question right have we considered this problem i don't think we have i think that that you have created a situation where it's so hard to grow uh as a company and to, to, to hit their earnings multiples and so on, that we're seeing stock buybacks. Like large companies are saying, hey, I've got no idea what to do with my money. I've got no idea what to do with it. I don't have a better answer for using your money as an investor that will pay off in the next one to five years than basically finding a way to give it back. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's how much money is floating around. I think it's going to be hard to contain it. 
I, th- I think it's going to be difficult to not have some kind of contagion, some level of contagion. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. The second question when you talk about housing markets, and I'm certainly not an expert on housing markets, so this is all my, oh, yeah. my thoughts and feelings. I wasn't asking for housing market expertise. <laughs> but, you know, just because there's inflation doesn't mean there's inflation everywhere, right, in the housing market, right? Just because, like, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, we should be seeing incredible inflation. Most of our companies, our growth companies, did well, right? I'm seeing a little bit of increase in my in my house price, but it hasn't been exploding like it should. And that's because there's a perspective that everyone's going to leave, which which isn't true, by the way. Uh, but there's a perspective that everyone's just going to up and leave. So how much of this is psychological? How much is, of this is real? How much is, of the diffusion is natural? I mean, I don't know. That's what keeps us in business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm supposed to, I, I know I'm supposed to take heavy meaty positions on that but i think it's no i think it's going to be odd but here's here's the scary thing Here, here's the thing i will take a position on you take a look out and this is like you know rogue waves typically are a result of things that happen above us or things that happen below us right like covid happened from above us it fell on all of us 2008 it was a whole bunch of little geeky things that were happening deep in the financial markets and in regulation and it rose up and upended everybody I'm concerned that there's a thing happening above us, which is uh, you're seeing the growth of China, disproportionate growth of China coming out of this. Uh, You're seeing uh, their desire to uh, buy debt from uh, countries. They're doing it strategically. They're going to be pushing infrastructure projects coming out of this. And why would they price that against the dollar if they could price it against their own currency? Right, is they start to have more foreign debt, uh, buy more foreign debt, and start pricing it against their own currency, all of a sudden the idea that the U.S., the dollar, 95% of international trade is on the dollar, goes away. And that's been really our foundational strategic position for the last, you know, since World War II. I don't think we're ready for that change. And if we're irresponsible with inflation, Right. If we're irresponsible and that contagion occurs here and it doesn't occur and you have stability on, on the yuan, you can see a shift. You can see a shift happening a lot faster than we think of global power from the U.S. to China. We'll have to get the yuan trading in a truly um, open and public way. And then the, and we'll, we'll determine how the, how the story plays out. That that is that is true, and they've got to stop treating it as a two sided currency. And there's a whole bunch of things that have to happen, but they're things that can happen on Tuesday if China wants them to. And and these are, and I think this is where it becomes very germane to the the ideas and the structure of the book, which is surfacing these conversations and going through the the process of trying to better understand all of these factors, particularly when there's certain known information out there and we're trying to determine what it is we don't know or think we know. You know, you also use um, this other analogy in in connection to World War I, but, you know, fighting the old wars, right? Mm -hmm. As we look out onto the landscape, we don't want to do that. You know, Mm -hmm. and I, I, I laughed that the Time magazine had a, had a photo of 
of Biden. It was like a mock-up as they goes into this summit, kind of dating when we're having this conversation, but it's going into the summit with, with Putin. And it was like him with sunglasses on the cover and Putin's in the shades. And I was like, God, this is so 80s with this idea, right? Like it's it's like we're retreading yeah. these conversations over and over and over as we as we stagnate. So it's just interesting. The, the Russian and the U.S. strategic position are very different today than they were yeah. in 1980. Yeah, but we use a lot of the same iconography and language about them. Um, so that I, I think there's a lot to pull um, from the book, which was a, a fantastic read. I, I want to keep us on time, so I want to get to the final two segments of the show, which are Off the Dome and The Drop. So Off the Dome are just rapid-fire questions Sometimes not as rapid fired as I think they are, but that's good too. And I have four of them. Okay. So if you're if you're ready to rock to off the dome, I'm ready to to give them to you. Sure. All right. Let's, let's do it. So the first one is, what make believe world would you live in if you can choose any of them? What make believe world would I live in if I could choose any of them? I like Star Trek. I like Star Trek. That's a good world. I'm all about the Federation. <laughs> I mean, I, I I live my house is directly on top of Federation headquarters. Uh, so exactly, San Francisco Starfleet Academy. Yeah, I'm I'm right right by the uh, right by the Golden Gate Bridge. There you go. So that's that's the first one. The second one is if you can choose any historical nickname, think Alexander the Great, Catherine the Great. What would be your <laughs> historical nickname? Uh, oh man, Sherlock Holmes. I guess that that might be a, a fictional nickname, but uh, you know, I, I think uh, he, he's kind of my favorite character. Maybe Vannevar Bush, who uh, ran U.S. science and technology policy in the mid twentieth century, and and Sherlock Holmes is referenced quite a bit in the book as well. So that's a he sure is. He sure is. <laughs> <laughs> in number three, what is the strangest gift you've ever received? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. That's a, such a weird, such a random question. Uh, well, they're all random by definition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think, how about this? This is a 3D printed uh, 100-sided object that has another 3D printed 100-sided object in it that has another 3D printed 100-sided object in it. It's very <laughs> postmodern. Okay. <laughs> the 3D printed hundred sided object infinity ball. Well, that's what the we'll infinity call it. ball. The infinity <laughs> ball, indeed. And finally, the last off the dome question: What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Oh, I mean, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing today, man. <laughs> I'd be talking to you. Uh, (laughs) higher yeah talking to me should not be anyone's like number one thing to be doing at any one moment i I would i would solve global poverty okay there it is and and that's a good one to not fail right because then we know you'd succeed one of our our biggest problems that's awesome i want to get to the drop and the drop are these intellectual morsels that we share with um our listeners and i have one I'm assuming you have at least one. There can be more than one drop, but I would say <sighs> a drop. So do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? So I would say I've, I've, there have been a couple of books I've really enjoyed this year. 
uh, one, I guess three, there, there you go. Three, one is against the gods, which is super geeky, but wonderful. It's a history of statistics, but I swear, I swear it's a wonderful book. (laughs) Uh, two is, uh, the price of peace. It's a, it's a, uh, a biography of John Maynard Keynes who we were talking about. And then the third, and we were talking about Farmer Lee Jones' cookbook, and I'm just getting the the name of it here. And it is, in fact, named after the farm. It's called The Chef's Garden, A Modern Guide to Common and Unusual Vegetables with Recipes. And uh, my very good friend, Jamie Simpson, wrote the recipes. That's awesome. I love those. Um, geeky books are more than allowed. Most of my guests and, and myself kind of choose things that are from all over the place, right? We get inspiration from any number of of sources. And I actually have one drop and it's a book as well. And it's called Inglorious Empire. And that's by um, Sashi Theroux. And it's a a history of the um, British Empire's uncanny destruction of um, India and, and many parts of South Asia under the guise of empire. And it, it makes a, a very stark and pragmatic case, um, despite colonial mythology, as to how the British Empire underdeveloped and destroyed India. So it's a it sounds like a chilling read, but I think it's a very useful read as we try to make sense of why things are today. We have to often look toward how they happened in the past. And so that's my drop. This has been a great conversation. I knew it would be as I was finishing the book. I and I always say this, listeners are used to me saying this, that, you know, we've only scratched the surface when I have, when we have these kind of conversations, which is a testament to the work we discuss and the, and the people we have on the show, because you're always doing such interesting stuff. And so I really recommend Rogue Waves. It's, it's a great book. It will make you think and will make you question things you thought you knew, which I think we should all be doing all the time. So Jonathan, I really want to thank you for being on the deep dive with me. This is amazing. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You take care. You too. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.